Adaptability is so important. You can't come in like a cookie cutter and make one kind of cookie. You need to be able to make a bunch of different kind of cookies for your game to taste very good. This is The Upper Hand, a podcast series by IMC. I'm Tim Polashek, and in this podcast, I invite masters of different games to see what steps you need to take to master them. From sports betting to Magic the Gathering, and from chess to diplomacy, you'll find out how you can use theory and practice to become the best. In this episode, we're going to learn to master the game of diplomacy. Diplomacy was released in 1959. It was the first commercially published game to be played by email, and it gained a big amateur fan base that even created their own magazine. It was also a popular game amongst politicians and is rumored to have been John F. Kennedy's and Henry Kissinger's favorite game. And Sheldon runs for Senate. I'm David Hood of the Diplomacy Broadcast Network, and this is Deadline, DBN's monthly news. David Hood has been a big fan of the game since 1984. He is a two times American champion. He hosts a monthly news show about diplomacy and his own diplomacy championship. So even though he's based in the US, there is truly no one better to teach me how to become better at diplomacy. We meet online so he can give me an exclusive insight in the best diplomacy tactics. All right, great. David, it's great to have you here. I'm glad to be here, Tim. Thanks very much for making the time. And so today we're going to get stuck into, well, what are we getting into? We're getting into a game called Diplomacy, which was a board game invented in 1959. It's intended to recreate pre-World War I Europe. So there's seven powers on the board. And it is a game like in, in, in a similar way to other board games that, that are based on a on a conflict model, you're trying to take over the map in diplomacy. You're trying to take over half of the map technically, but it's different in the sense that there were some innovations that the game designer came up with that really changed board gaming forever. There was never, there was never a board game before this where the players all moved simultaneously on the board. So you write out your orders for your units and then they're all revealed simultaneously, and then there's an adjudication to determine who gets where. And the other big innovation in, in relation to gaming is that there's no luck in the game whatsoever. So the only way to win a conflict is to have numerical superiority, which generally means you have to negotiate with other powers, hence the name diplomacy. Okay, wow. Sounds like there's a big psychological element to this game as well. So how many players do we have? What does the game look like? It has seven players. It is a map of essentially uh, Europe in 1901. So the game involves playing either England, France, Germany, Italy, Austria, Hungary, Russia, or the Ottoman Turks. The game is roughly based or divided, I mean, between the western half of the board and the eastern half of the board. And the reason I say that is because there's 34 spots on the board, which we call supply centers. Those are your objectives. If you achieve 18, take 18 of them, you have won the game. In diplomacy, we call that soloing the game. The first thing that you do is spend 15 minutes or something negotiating with your fellow players, because that's actually how the game operates. So diplomacy is, you said earlier, it's a psychological game. It is, in fact, a primarily, in my opinion, a psychological game. I sometimes say 
It is a game about people, not pieces on the map. Mm, that is really fascinating to hear. And I can imagine those different powers, the different countries that you can play also come with slightly different strategies that you might use? Very much so. If you are playing England, for example, you start with two fleets and an army. Everybody starts with one unit per supply center they own in the beginning, and everybody owns three except for the Russians who own four. But the English start with two fleets. There's a good reason for that. It's an island. And the way that plays is different, very different, for example, from playing Austria-Hungary, which is mostly a land power that is surrounded by people. England, not so much so. So all of these situations are very, very different, which is part of the beauty and, and genius of the game is it's got so much replayability because you played Turkey last game, you play you know, Germany the next game. It's a totally different experience in addition to the fact that the people you're playing with may be different, and that leads to a different experience. Yeah, that's an interesting point because there must be so many different combinations of possible gameplays uh, and, and strategies depending on who you're playing with. What weighs up? Uh, more importantly, the the well, you hinted at it earlier, the, the type of people that you're playing with or the type of strategies that are being uh, implemented? Well, as with most multiplayer games, it's a combination of the two. But in diplomacy, it is primarily about the people. You can argue till you're blue in the face if you're playing France that you're better off allying with Germany in the beginning against England or better off allying with England against Germany. But it totally depends on the players. Can you establish a good relationship with the German player versus the English player? And so a lot of it depends on relationships and your ability to build uh, lasting alliances or maybe not lasting. That's the other thing about diplomacy is sometimes you need to jettison your friend. You need to backstab him in the back. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because it's the first thing that I thought of as you were saying about building up the relationships in, in the early part of the game. When someone knows that you may stab them in the back later on, how do you go about setting up a quality strategic relationship at the beginning? Are there certain things that you can focus on to, to make that more likely to happen? How, how could you go about doing that? Well, you focus on short-term goals that may be shared, even if your medium-term or long-term goals might diverge. For example, if, if, just to go back to the example of France, if you're playing France, you may ally with England, and England may ally with you because you want to attack the Germans, take some of their stuff. You each know that the other one might have some temptation later to, to, to break the alliance and attack. But in the short term, eliminating the Germans or taking some of their stuff is helpful to both of you. So you focus on short-term objectives. Right, okay. And is there a... Is there an advantage, um, depending on which power uh, you're assigned? And it's a random assignment of powers? It is typically random, particularly in tournament settings or league settings. But yes, there are tremendous, uh, there's actually a tremendous disagreement among hobby analysts on which powers are the strongest and which are the weakest. And I, I, I did a whole talk on this one time. It depends on when you ask. If you asked in the 1980s, people thought that England and Turkey were the strongest powers and that Austria and Italy were the weaklings. If you ask now, People will tell you that Turkey is a weakling and Austria and Italy are strong. It depends on the way the, the thinking of the hobby has gone. Mm, yeah, it's interesting to hear how that uh, game develops over time as well. Uh, so would you recommend being able to play all the powers well and understanding the different strategies? If you want to be a, a good player 
who can compete at the higher levels, you have to be adaptable. In fact, adaptability is one of the traits that makes a good diplomacy player, which is one of the reasons why I like diplomacy. It trains you for life. Now, I'm not talking about the backstabbing part. That Again, you need to leave that in the game. That is not something good for life. But a lot of other skills that you learn in diplomacy, communication skills, relationship skills, reading other people, that skill, adaptability to different situations, being able to be creative and come up with some new ideas, all of those things that help us in life help you in diplomacy. And so it's good training for that in addition to being a lot of fun. What are some of the ways that you can up your game at diplomacy? How can you start to, to look at you know the ways that you're playing and get to the next level? The, the best way to get better is to go out and do it over and over and over again to try to learn. And you're not just learning by doing, you're learning by watching other people. Practice is certainly my first answer to your question. But the second answer is you can do homework. There is a lot of diplomacy material available online And a lot of it is really good. But I would also say that just like in every other endeavor in today's world, YouTube is a great place to go. How easy or difficult is it to analyze the the diplomacy side or the psychological side of the game? It can be difficult to do from the outside looking in because we're not always privy to the communications between the players. But sometimes we are. In championship games, we have reporters who listen in to the conversations. They report back to us and say, well, here's the way this negotiation went. And that gives us information that we, which we can then use to educate our, our viewers. And so in that negotiation phase, uh, what, are, what are some of the ways that you can engage with, with other players? What are some of the, 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 the strategies and ways that you can start to explore what's possible with other players? Well, I will answer that by giving another real-life example. By building a relationship like you do with anybody else, you ask about how, what they think. You listen. You uh, give proposals that are mutually beneficial or at least partially beneficial to them as well as you. You pass on information that you've heard that you think might be useful to them or perhaps disinformation that you haven't heard that you want them to think is true. Well, a lot of it just depends on reading the person you're talking to and coming up with a strategy to get them to do what what you want them to do, which, again, is in some ways what life is about. Not in a nefarious way, but in a mutually beneficial way. Yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of overlaps with uh, especially skills and things that are useful in in, uh, uh, the rest of life as well. Do you see, if you know the people that you're playing with, do you see parts of their personality come forward in the game then as well? There's no question about it. People can change some, but ultimately they're going to negotiate and play the game from from whence they come. There are people who are introverted that are like, well, I'm not sure that's the game for me. And I always pull out Peter McNamara, and Peter will not mind that I say this. I would argue a very introverted guy in Australia who won the Invitational World Championship in 2021. The guy's a really good player, but is not a traditional extrovert. He does it by playing to his own strengths. He's a very analytical guy. He's a good listener. He is a low-key guy that you don't think is going to be threatening to you. So there, there are ways that you use your own individual personality to be successful. But I also believe that if you are someone who is not naturally um, active, that in other words, you're passive, you need to push yourself to be more active sometimes. And the same is true 
and vice versa. If you're more like me, and you can already tell, so I like for the to be the person making the action happen. Sometimes I need to dial that back. So another thing that diplomacy helps you do is to realize what maybe some of your less uh, developed skills are and help develop them. Because again, adaptability is so important. You can't come in like a cookie cutter and make one kind of cookie. You need to be able to make a bunch of different kind of cookies for your game to taste very good. David is going to take me through some of the tactics of playing on the board. But let's first look into some theory behind diplomacy. As David mentioned, the game of diplomacy has a big psychological element. You have to understand your opponent and try to find some allies who can help you get to your objectives. But how do I know if I can trust someone? Negotiation is the foundation of the game, and you therefore have to find a way to make it work for you. However, when negotiating with other players, you never quite know if they're going to adhere to their promises or not. Some people are more likely to stab you in the back, but luckily there are ways to assess that risk during negotiations. It's important to get to know your opponent's track record. You might have some previous experience with them. Are they reliable? Do they stick to their agreements? You can ask other players what they know about a certain player and try to find out which players are best suited to help you in your objectives. The level of experience of your player can also tell you a lot about their reliability. Novice players usually are a little wary of working together and think that lying and backstabbing is the best way to get to victory. Experienced players learn that this isn't the case and learn to avoid these novice players. The motivation of a player is also an indicator for their reliability. Not all players want to accomplish the same things. Some play for the excitement and don't care if they win or lose. Some want to win no matter what and others see a draw as the next best thing and are trying to find the best ways to prevent anyone else from winning. By assessing all these details about your opponent, you can make a better prediction of how they're going to react to your negotiating tactics. You can use that to seek out the most trustworthy alliances and ultimately win. Get to know your opponents before you decide on your strategy. David agrees that this is the essential first step and then the negotiations start for real. This is the main skill that David encourages you to work on. Time management is, an, is another skill that you learn. So you've only got 15 minutes, which sounds like a long time, until you've got six people to talk to. Only ever one-on-one, -on -one, or can they be more people They can together? be multiple. Sometimes, sometimes we have what's called triples, where you get three people together and they decide they're going to have a triple alliance. And so there are such things as triples. A popular one right now is a triple between Russia, I'm sorry, between Austria, Italy, and Russia, which is called the Air Alliance, against Turkey. And another interesting aspect of the game is you can see who's gone off to talk to who, which other players. So you can get some idea of who's talking to with whom about what. So you try to, for example, in the case of this triple alliance with the AIR, a lot of times they will try to try to hide that by never talking between the three of them in an open setting. They just talk twos on twos, but they're talking about the fact that they've got this three-way alliance. Because if you see the three of them talking together, you might think there's a three-way alliance, which might cause England, France, and Germany to do a three-way alliance to combat this three-way alliance. And you don't really want that if you're one of these guys. You want these three to keep fighting each other. Wow. Okay. So there's a million things that you need to be thinking of. How do you prioritize in this 15-minute negotiation period? 
And that's that time management skill that I said that you learn in diplomacy, which you do. You learn to think quickly, you learn to think on your feet, and you learn to prioritize what matters versus what doesn't matter. And sometimes the opposing players are trying to keep you from correctly prioritizing it. They try to monopolize your time. Let me come talk to you. And then three minutes later, they're still jibber-jabbering to you about something that doesn't matter, and they're wasting your time on purpose. David prepared an example for me so I can understand the board and the negotiations. Every player starts with three units on the board, either fleets or armies. They can use these units to conquer other regions by attacking. After the negotiation, all players write down their commands for their units. All commands are simultaneously carried out and the units are being moved accordingly. If two opposing units attack a region at the same time, they end up in a draw and they both don't get to conquer the region. There are other moves that a unit can do, but let's stick to these basics for now. To really understand how negotiations can be useful, David gives me an example using France and England. These are all the opening positions in spring 1901, so we're talking about what the spring 1901 moves would be, your first set of moves that you're going to secretly write or secretly put into the computer program, and then they're all going to be revealed at the same time. So here's here's France thinking they're going to have a good, you know, uh, peaceful relationship with England, and England saying, uh-uh, I'm going to the English Channel, which is somewhat threatening to France. And all of a sudden, France is thinking, well, shoot, you're in the English Channel. That's right next to my home center in Brest. It's right next to Belgium, which I wanted to take. I wish we hadn't done that. And England saying, yeah, but I was worried about you going into English Channel or whatever. One thing that you could do if you're negotiating between England and France is change those orders. By negotiating before the moves are made, France can try to become allies with England and not threaten each other's regions. They can, for example, agree to both stay away from the English Channel. You have English Channel as a buffer zone that nobody went into, and so you don't have to worry as much about the threat. Of course, the other option might be, if you're still a little bit jumpy about this, is for one side or the other to say, I suggest that we both go to the English Channel in spring 1901 as a buffer zone. When you finished at the end of that season, you would see that both this fleet in London and this fleet in Belgium stay where they are because they, quote, bounced in the English Channel. They both went there with a strength of one, which means that neither went there, which means nobody has to worry about the other one being in the English Channel. That's sort of a basic uh, explanation of how negotiations might enter into to moves. And so just just before we uh, round off here, if you notice that you're building up uh, your, your um, offensiveness or your power in the game and you notice that you're probably the strongest power in the game, are there particular things that you need to be really wary of in order to keep that advantage? Yes, you need to keep your enemies from uh, coalescing against you. So if, you, if you're the rising power and there's other powers on the board that could react to that and stop you, you have to figure out how to prevent that from happening. A good way to do that is to realize that there's probably bad feelings between some of those players who have been fighting the entire game. Are they really going to be able to bury the hatchet, so to speak, and work together against you? And the answer might be yes, but you might be able to help prevent that from happening. There are players that are relatively smaller players towards the end of the game that know that they don't have a chance. The question is, what incentives do they have? If you can push the right buttons, 
you can get players who will play kingmaker for you. Or they just want to be involved in the outcome. They may help you win. It makes them feel good that they helped you win. Uh, there are people who, again, revenge is a, is a, is a potential uh, aspect of the game. There are people who misanalyze the situation, and you can help them misanalyze the situation maybe on who's really the threat in the game. I played a game myself in a tournament not too long ago. I was playing France, and, and, and I sort of let Russia get bigger than me. I encouraged them to get bigger than me, and I helped them get bigger than me so that other players would jump on that bandwagon and realize they needed to go attack the Russians. They put themselves out of position against me. I attacked them and won the game. Wow, it sounds like one of the key skills to take away here is intent listening and understanding how to adapt your game based on those relationships with others. Very much so, and their relationships with each other. All right, fantastic. Thanks very much for your time, David. No problem at all. Glad to do it. David points out that diplomacy is all about people. You have to learn to use your own strengths and learn to read people so you know how to persuade them to help you win the game. You can become better at diplomacy by playing the game with all the different powers and by doing your homework and learning about different strategies. Then you can really master diplomacy. In the next episode of The Upper Hand, I'm interviewing Brian Canavan about Dota 2. Brian is a former professional Dota 2 player and now a content creator at Team Liquid. He's an expert at playing Dota 2 and he'll teach me how to master the game.